What I found was there's just such a positive, rich legacy there to tap into. And what we had to do was make it more relevant. So we had to really move into the forefront. We had to do some things to shake up the the kind of state image that we had. Hey there, James here, and you're listening to the Own the Moment podcast, the show where we explore the complex and always evolving landscape of marketing, advertising, and branding, and try to get to the bottom of what it means to be a truly memorable brand. The Own the Moment podcast is brought to you by Como Technologies, a self-service, complete customer engagement platform that helps you cut through the noise to truly connect with your customers and retain and grow those connections over time. With Como, you can build and deploy new campaigns, activations, promotions, and programs in days, not months. And our software is used by some of the world's biggest consumer brands from Heineken to Budget, Goodman Fielder, Foxtel, JLL, Williams Racing, and McDonald's. Learn more at Como.tech. My guest today is Jenny Dill the Chief Marketing Officer at one of Australia's most iconic brands, Arnott's. For Aussies, Arnott's broad portfolio of brands, from Tim Tams to Shapes and Jats Crackers, are just a part of everyday life. But how do you keep a brand with 157 years of legacy fresh and continue to innovate? Despite the amazing list of well-known brands, growth and innovation had slowed at Arnott's, something Jenny was determined to change. In her own words, she wanted to put the F, that's fast, back in fast-moving consumer goods. Jenny and I had a great discussion around how to innovate in a brand with such a strong legacy, why the fruit is in the roots and looking to the past can so often provide the keys to success in the future and talked about why marketers tend to tire of their own work far before consumers do. If you're in consumer, FMCG, or brand marketing, this episode is a must-listen. I hope you enjoy the show. Jenny Dill, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you very much. Great to be here. Uh, Jenny, I want to talk about this idea of innovating within a legacy brand. Tell me a little bit about you uh, and how you ended up at Arnott's. What's the journey that's gotten you to where where you are today? Um, oh, it's a long, long journey over many, many <laughs> years. Um, but ultimately, I, when I was searching for my next role, I really wanted to do something that was anchored in Australia and Australian brands and an Australian business. Hmm. And um, FMCG is just kind of in my blood and in my bones and in my DNA. So right. when the opportunity arts came up, it was, it's, it, I mean, it's such an incredible brand with such a positive, powerful legacy in this country. And it felt like it was really something that I could do some great work with. Um, it felt like there was so much opportunity there. And even though we had such an incredible portfolio of really strong brands that Aussies loved, um, there was still so much more opportunity there in front of us. Yeah. Talk, talk a little bit about like the state of Arnott's when you joined. I mean, obviously lots of opportunity, but you, I know you have mentioned, you know, in public before mm-hmm. that there's been sort of some underinvestment in, in brand and in innovation. Talk a little mm-hmm. bit about sort of, you know, when you came on board, what did you see? What did you observe? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and sort of, you know, out of that, what were the big opportunities that you, okay. you saw? Um, I think, um, so for me, when I joined Arnott's, uh, the business had been for sale for a couple of years, so it had been going through a fairly lengthy sale process, mm. which tended to um, 
tended to mean that a lot of things were on hold, the big projects, the big initiatives, everything typically gets put on hold in a process like that um, to await new owners. So when I joined, after the new owners joined, uh, we were literally on a mission to reignite the business, reignite the growth trajectory and really get moving with everything we possibly could. Mm. Um, We knew that the, the, the legacy portfolio was really strong, loved brands, amazing market share positions, held a really strong place in consumers' hearts and and Mm. in the market here. But we could also see the emerging trends in the biscuit space and in snacking that just created such an opportunity for us, both from a brand perspective, from a product innovation perspective, and from a marketing perspective as well. Yeah, talk a little bit about, because I guess there's something sort of interesting, like for me, when I think Arnott's, I just think biscuits. Um, and I know you don't just do that, but you know, is there, or was there a challenge when you joined regarding, um, (laughs) maybe this sounds a bit silly, but like biscuits doesn't feel necessarily like a younger demographic thing, right? I think of like my grandma and milk (laughs) arrow roots and and all that sort of stuff. Tell me a little bit about like, when you joined, what did you see? Like you say, the brand is very strong. I have very strong emotional connection to a lot of the products, but you know, I, I, it wouldn't surprise me if there's a pretty clear sort of demographic um, challenge there with reaching sort of younger mm-hmm. consumers. T- talk a little bit about that and, um, you know, despite how well known the brand is, you know, maybe some of the challenges in converting that into. Yeah, so I think um, the, the story starts after I'd agreed to join Arnott's, but before I'd actually joined, I had a few weeks between gigs. And um, I was getting in the back of a taxi. So I was going somewhere to an event or to a, to a dinner or something like that. And I got talking to the taxi driver, as you do. And he mm. just asked, what do you do? And I made it sound like I'd already joined Arnott's. So I said, hi, oh, sure. I work for Arnott's. And he just rattled off into this amazing story that was so powerful about the products he loved from Arnott's, how it connected him to his mum and dad or aunt and uncle and the, the broader family. And there was just such rich, powerful, positive emotional connections, just pretty much like what you said right then. Mm. Um, Mm. And then my next question was, that's amazing. That's so good to hear. When was the last time you had them? (laughs) And the answer was well over five years ago. Yes. So what, what what I found was there's just such a positive, rich legacy there to tap into. And what we had to do was make it more relevant for today. We had to make sure people... We reminded people that we were there because I think we've mm. become a little bit taken for granted and a little bit in the background of people's minds. Right. So we had to really move into the forefront. We had to do some things to shake up the the kind of state image that we had, but make sure that we were really honouring that legacy of the wonderful Arnott's brand and that we were honouring it in a way that allowed us to um, respect the history, but to mm. make it much more relevant in today for consumers today in their lifestyles today how they're living how they're eating um and i think we're on that journey we still have a ways to go but we're making great progress and uh, really proud of it so far yeah do, do you think the the like if we take the challenge of reaching younger consumers is it product innovation or is it more sort of that sort of reinvigorating the brand because i you know i assume a big part of this is also you know the right product for the right target right and yeah I don't know why I'm not, I don't mean to pick on milk arrow roots, but like, you know, there's like versus say a Tim Tam, you know, I assume a big part of this is also how do we connect the right products with the right consumers? 
Yeah, absolutely. And the right time of day and the right occasion. So the beauty of the Arnott's portfolio, we have such a big, broad portfolio. I'm pretty mm. sure our competitors look at it with envy mm. um, in terms of the market share position we've been able to maintain over the years. But, you know, we've got everything from five-star health-rated Vitaweets to have as lunch wow. with tomatoes and avocados all the way through to the most indulgent Tim Tam when you need that little pick me up at the end of a really long day. So Hmm. we've got such an amazing portfolio and, you know, I keep, I I talk to a lot of mums and I always hear that milk arrowroot is still one of the favorite first biscuits (laughs) they give to kids. Oh, wow. So, because it's such a wholesome set of ingredients, it's still, um, it's not too treaty. It, it's right. still got some really wholesome ingredients, and it it almost acts like something they give their kids to chew on and keep them a little bit entertained as well when they're when they're really little. Um, so they still play that really positive role in in consumers' lives. Um, but I think the magic of Arnott's is the breadth of the portfolio and just the amount of occasions and consumer groups we can we can talk to with that size of the yeah. portfolio. We did have to do a few things though. So hmm. you know, um, with a brand of this size, if you're not constantly trying to keep it up to date and relevant it will naturally age um just given 157 years of legacy Mm. um so what we found is we did have to do some fun things in social um to keep the brands really front of mind with a younger audience and again we abide by all the marketing to kids rules so when i say younger audience i'm talking about young adults not not young kids um and then we did a few fun, fun things, like we did a partnership with Krispy Kremes, which just mm. fundamentally changed the perception of Arnott's. They were treat products, but they were so much fun and they tasted amazing and it created a lot of excitement in the category. We've done some healthier things with a property like Australia's favourite kids' licence property, Bluey. We very wow. clearly marketed them to mums and dads and carers to make the right decision for their kids. But with three and a half and four health star rated products, it made it a really interesting proposition for parents because it was um relatively nutritious it was definitely delicious but it was also fun which is a rarity in food marketing for kids parents are too often forced to choose between something that's healthy and boring and something that's not so healthy and fun so as soon as you took that that kind of dichotomy away um it delivered some amazing results yeah that's interesting i want to come back to promotions and social in a in a moment. Um, I, I read this quote from, I think maybe it was when you joined, you said Arnott's needed to put the F back in FMCG. You know, what What did you mean by that? And is that what you're talking about there with, you know, partnerships, promotions, sort of breaking the mould? And just one last piece of that question is, you know, um, something like Bluey, would that have happened 10 years ago? Or is that sort of part of that putting the F back in FMCG? Talk a little bit about sort of that reinvigoration and yeah i mean so firstly um by f i meant fast Mm. (laughs) um and fmcg if i go back 10 20 years when i was a junior brand manager in fmcg it was fast and furious um Hmm. and we were able to move fairly quickly and somehow as everyone de-risked their business model it got very safe everything slowed down and i think within arnott's everything was very slow and sequential so Mm. uh we were not missing trends completely, but we were slow to bring um, initiatives to market to tap into emerging consumer trends. So Mm. we had to really review all of our processes and the work and focus on the things that were adding value and that were helping us create real consumer value with what we were doing and make sure we were looking externally with the right amount of time, with the right tools, with the right lens. And 
really compressing some of the internal processes that had expanded over time to really mm. um, take up the majority of the time, which, which forced everyone to be looking inward all of the time and dealing internally rather than looking out to our customers and out to our consumers to see what we could be doing to drive growth. Yeah, and um, later I want to ask you a little bit, um, or I want to dig into this idea of the sort of CMO's remit. But just on that note, like how how much risk you know did you have to take in that regard to say, hey, we're going to sort of we're going to sort of um, you know we're going to run faster, we're going to try more, we're going to innovate because I guess you know the natural um, you know the, the natural uh, result of that is not everything will work, and you know risk <laughs> risk comes with a risk. How, how do you how did you think about sort of I guess um, uh, pushing through that change internally. Yeah, I, I, I guess I've got a. I might have a different philosophy on this to some. Um, I think as a marketer, you're constantly dealing with the future, mm. and you've got to you've got to take a planning stance on what you want the future to be. Right. You've got a role in helping shape it and create it, but you've also got to take some risk hmm. because you'll never get to the things you really want to do in the future if you don't take on board some sort of risk. And for me, the bigger risk as a marketer is actually not doing anything. Um, right. There are there are no successful marketers that have just stood still while times passed around them. So right. you you have to you have to have a vision for the future. You have to have a plan for how you're going to deliver growth. Um, and it, yes, there's risks that comes with that, but I think the bigger risk is doing nothing or standing still. Yeah, that's interesting because I guess there's like part of this. What I assume sometimes builds up in these legacy brands is this like don't mess it up um, culture, right? Which is like you know like we've built this strong position. Too much risk is scary because you know we could not you know throw it all away. So I, I definitely sort of understand that. Um, what, one thing that you talked about um, again publicly was this idea of the fruit is in the roots. Um, I, I want to talk a little bit more about what you mean by that um, and how you balance looking forward and having a vision for the future with respecting the, uh, mm-hmm. the past. One of the examples you talked about, which like I assume like every Australian has a really strong emotional connection to, which is the Tim Tam Genie. Talk a little bit about how you think about, you know, the fruit is in the roots and how you mm-hmm. balance the past and the the future in, in all the strategies you're executing today. Yeah. So I think um, I think the legacy of that fruit is in the roots statement came from PNG. And I had a right. number of old bosses over the years who were from XPNG. And um, what that really meant was, particularly when you move into a new assignment or a new business or a new brand, really understanding the history and the legacy of that brand um, and making sure that you're clear what's worked in the past and what hasn't worked in the past and why. And you usually find the gold in there somewhere, the fruit in there somewhere. There's those little nuggets of, of success, pockets of success or things that worked brilliantly somewhere in the history of the brand that gives you the clues as to where you should be going. Um, I think too many mm. marketers literally try and throw everything out and start again. And I think that's dangerous because I don't think consumers can deal with that amount of change in their lives, particularly with something as as innocuous as a, as a packet of biscuits that sits in the pantry or the fridge. Um, right. You know, you, you want to make sure you're tapping into and honouring that legacy while still making it fresh and relevant and continuing to evolve the story. And there's a balancing act in there, absolutely. Um, and for me, for a brand like Tim Tams that's such an iconic brand, every Aussie is truly proud of this brand. When you go overseas or, or people from overseas totally. come to you, you want to introduce them to the Tim Tam and have them do a Tim Tam slam, which is phenomenal. 
So our job is to make sure that we don't mess that up, to make sure that we're really respecting everything that's great about the brand and really bringing that to the fore to make sure that everyone can can connect with the brand the right way. And it's funny because I was just reading something the other day in Marketing Week. Um, I think it might have been Ritson and someone from System One, but they were saying, you know, like campaigns don't wear out, they wear in, you know, mm-hmm. all of this, mm-hmm. all of the, which it does run sort of counterintuitive to, I guess, that sort of like, you know, what, what would seem obvious is that, you know, people get sick of, you know, seeing the the same mm-hmm. ads over and over. And, but of course, you know, the, the marketing science tells us it's the opposite. And I think, you know, there's something there around, you know, finding that old gold and sort of, I mean, you see it like, you know, brands do do that successfully all the time, right? Bringing mm-hmm. back mascots or taglines mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. whatever it might be. But but something you said, which is, um, you know, there's this tendency to sort of throw everything out. Where, where do you think that comes from? I mean, I know that, you know, the CMO is the shortest average tenure in the C-suite, you know, and, and you know, there's all the the memes around, you know, the CMO comes in and wants to redesign the brand. And what, what, where does that um, instinct come from, do you think? And, uh, you know, you, you've obviously, you know, fought off that, you know, or you, you haven't followed that instinct, but why do you think so many CMOs have that instinct? Oh, it's hard. I can't, I can't really answer for everyone else. Sure. But um, I think it's something to do with marketers get bored with the work faster than anybody else. <laughs> I think that's a scientifically right. proven fact. Um, I've been asking my team for years, I think going back at least 10 years now, pick one thing, just wear it out, go for it, knock, knock right. yourselves out, see if you can wear it out. And even at some of the largest spending brands in the country, we weren't able to wear anything out. So, hmm. um, you know, for me, if I, if I look at our return on investment model in all of my previous jobs, we were still at the point of increasing return from increasing investment, yeah, um, which is a phenomenal place to be. And the danger, I think, is that most marketers get bored of things well before any consumer even gets used to it being part of their lives. And I think the budget process, for some for some reason, new year, new budget, new work. I'm like, why? 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 Yeah. <laughs> Explain to me why we need new work. We might need to freshen up, you know, add a new scenario in or freshen up in some way, but you definitely don't need a new ad every year for every brand you work on. Yeah. So have you implemented any of that in either previous roles or, or currently where you've actually tried to go in and say, hey, like that model, let's throw it out and, and, and do something new? Yeah. I mean, that's <laughs> one way that we're actually able to drive a lot more media weight and consumer connection is by making less work, making huh. it behind a bigger idea and a platform that allows you to run it for longer you make right. less work, you stop that busyness churn of the team and mm. you actually then spend more dollars in the total budget actually connecting with consumers and driving your sales, which is what we're supposed to do. Yeah, that, that's so, so let, let, yeah, let's pivot to sort of that, um, you know, putting those dollars to work and driving sales. How do you guys think about, um, uh, you know, so if we move from platform and, um, and into sort of promotion, you know, what, what are the sort of tactics? I know you've talked about the split between retail and e-commerce. How do you guys think about sort of connecting with customers and sort of driving action? What, you know, what sort of things are you experimenting with, trying? It would be very interesting to hear how you're thinking about, you know, promotion and activation. Yeah. So, I mean, as part of our 
roll on on us. We had to make sure that we were connecting with our consumers across all ages. Mm. And you have to be where consumers are and you have to be engaging and entertaining in the right way. I think the only thing that I'll say on the wear out analysis is if you're really, really annoying, you will probably wear out a bit faster. Sure. Um, but if you're entertaining and engaging and it's warm, positive, happy um, mm. uh, uh, association, I think you've got the right to be consistent for a lot longer. Right. And um, so for us, you know, we every year we look at our media mix and we make, you know, slight tweaks and changes based on what's working really well for us or where we might have some challenge areas or where consumers' eyeballs are moving um, right. to make sure that we're constantly building on our ROI success model and increasing our return from increasing investment each year. So every year it's looking at different channels, looking at different message, looking at different lengths, looking at different formats and putting it all back together in a slightly different way, but a way that's going to drive growth for us and drive a better result and overall outcome. Yeah. Um, I wish I could say it's rocket science. It is. It's really smart investment maths. Um, yeah. And it's, it's, it's a proven approach over time and you get a, a bunch of guys out there. So we work with some great external partners in this space, We're, you know, beyond our, our publicist relationship on creative and strategy and media. We work with a couple of external third parties that help us with marketing, mixed modeling, analytic partners. Mm-hmm. Um, we work with Mad Clarity to do our media benchmarking um, and, uh, you know, provide real input to, what's going on in the marketplace that we should be taking advantage of in a media strategy. And we use Luma to do all our advertising testing. Mm. And sometimes in these jobs, advertising testing gets a dirty word. Uh, it gets a, it gets a bad name if you like. Um, mm. But we view it as a way of making sure the work we either just produce or are about to produce lands the right message in the right way with consumers. It's not about testing the creativity of the work. It's about testing is the message landing and will this help us do what we need to do in the marketplace? Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, uh, speaking of sort of promotions and social, uh, you, you said somewhere that sort of, you know, interestingly, social media doesn't always sort of give the impact that it might sort of, you know, intuit- you would think intuitively it would. You talked about this Boris Johnson um uh, sort of, I was about to say incident, I guess endorsement. Uh, talk a little bit about that and how you guys think about sort of PR, promotion, sort of connecting direct um, and sort of, you know, building that affinity that way and, and where it does and doesn't work. Because I think, again, that Boris Johnson piece was sort of an interesting counterexample to a lot of the uh, yeah people's intuition about stunts and PR and awareness. Yeah, try, try as we might, we couldn't find it directly to sales from Boris Johnson um, <laughs> uh, spooking our product. Um, we use social in a, in a, in a really, I think, smart way to mm. help build some excitement and some hype and some engagement behind our products. And it's very closely connected even more so to PR in this day and age, not corporate right. PR where you're talking your sustainability story, but your fun mm. brand PR sure. where consumers just want in. And we do a lot of, a lot of social listening and we always mm. find we've got some very creative consumers who've got some great suggestions. Mm. So uh, we lent into that and we've done it in a couple of ways. One is um, what my team would call Snap, which is actually, sorry, not a real product, which mm. is just creating, you know, taking some of our really loved products like Shapes or Tim Tams and coming up with some new ways to deliver flavor in a very uniquely Shapes way right. and finishing with the tagline of sorry, not a real product. So people love pizza shapes. They love those bits in the bottom of the bag. And mm. 
inventing flavor shakers filled that just added pizza shapes flavor to everything you do is a great idea, right? You Absolutely. can put it on anything, ice cream, breakfast I'd buy cereal. That. <laughs> exactly. Um, and we did another one. We partnered with Xbox um, to do a promotion and um, one of our product developers said, hey, what if we did this? And we came up with these, we made little shapes, shaped Xbox controllers. We even put the little buttons on them <laughs> and we just posted it on social and it went bananas. So we ended up making about a hundred packs and we gave them away in a social oh, promotion. And it awesome. was literally the money can't buy kind of stuff that just is so exciting on a brand like this where we control the product locally. We've got yes. a great team of product developers. We can do things fairly quickly in a fairly manual way. And it just really helps us create some excitement. Yeah, that's interesting. So in so those hundred people, were they was that, you know, entering a competition or, you know, picked at random or how did that sort of work mechanically? It's a really fun idea. Yeah, that one was literally you entered a competition and we selected some winners at random and yeah. um they went to town on socials when they were the winners, absolutely, because it was money can't buy stuff. And yeah. um, there was a lot of pride getting your hands on one of those boxes and literally playing with the little buttons just before you ate the barbecue shapes. It was pretty cool. Yeah, so it's funny because, like, you know, I guess, like, promotions like that, you know, whether it's, like, a sort of user-generated content, I don't know, like, I assume you've done things like, you know, um, submit, yeah, flavors or whatever. Like, that stuff works. I mean, sort of engaging mm-hmm. people in the process and, yeah, that's – um. Yeah. That's fascinating. Have you ever the made second, oh sorry, the, sec- the second way we did something was with April Fool's Day. So we love doing a bit of a stunt. But we one year we we just did a partnership with our friends at Vegemite because we work with them on shapes. So we've got a shapes mm. flavor Vegemite out I there. I love those, by the way. <laughs> They're pretty good. <laughs> um and then we said, What about if we did this with Tim Tam? And you know, a Vegemite flavoured Tim Tam was equal parts intriguing, potentially yeah. a little bizarre, potentially a little gross. But really, what it was was this amazing sweet salty combination. So hmm. we put it out as a um, as an April Fool's Day stunt, and it just went nuts on social. So much so that we ended up making a hundred packs by hand, and again wow. we gave those away as well. So um, you can have a lot of fun with it, and yeah. you just need to make sure it's not gross because it is food at the end of the day you want it to taste delicious it can be intriguing but it's still got to have an amazing taste behind mm. it otherwise i think it's um we've lost were the they, plot were, were they good the i mean i assume they were if you made 100 packs they were good that i mean sweet and salty <laughs> is sure. just a timeless flavor combination so yeah. um super good yeah that's interesting so so like uh, are you what are you guys doing in, in like because I assume one of the big challenges, you know, is sort of, you know, how do you get people in store at the right aisle? You know, are you doing anything around sort of that first party data piece? It's obviously the sort of thing on everyone's minds right now. I guess those competitions are one way of building that. Mm-hmm. Um, is there anything else that you're thinking about with sort of, you know, I guess the, you know, um, uh, all of the privacy stuff coming through, making sort of targeted advertising more tricky with iOS 17 and GDPR and Google Chrome, you know, killing off cookies next year. Are you guys <laughs> thinking about first-party data at all? And, you know, how do you, how do you think about that? Yeah, I think everybody is thinking about first-party data and how they build more of it quickly mm. um, to enable the right kind of one-to-one direct conversations when you need to enable you to balance your core messaging that's going out through your media channels and right. to actually bring that tribe of consumers who love you the most a little bit closer. Hmm. Um, we're still on a journey. We're nowhere near where we want to be, but we're a long way hmm. from where we were two years ago. Sure. Um, and, you know, we do use our socials to do those sorts of things to build first-party data. We use, we've use we got great recipes on our websites, right. we've got great product information. So we, we, we're, we're doing a lot in that space, 
but mm. we're not where we want to be yet is probably my my summary yeah and i guess you know on that note with recipes and those competitions it's you know giving people a reason to come and interact with the brand and the products outside of that transaction moment um which is what everyone's looking for so that makes sense um Jenny, I want to pivot a little bit to the CMO remit. We've touched on it a little bit. I want to go a little bit deeper. Um, I was reading something from Mark Ritson the other day, and he said, too many CMOs have become CPOs, chief promotion officers, and marketers need to take back the other three Ps. Do you agree with that? Um, and I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on sort of the the current state of the union as, as it um, uh, relates to the CMO role and, and the remit. Yeah, I think... Um... My perspective is part of the problem with the CMO role is that it is such a broad church and right. every business has a slightly different definition of what's in scope and what's out of scope. Hmm. If I look at my CEO, super clear what's in their remit. If I look at a CFO, super clear what's in their remit. Um, but the CMO tends to flex based on the business needs, which hmm. as it should, but it means when you start talking about CMOs as a whole, they're a very, very, very broad, broad skill set and range of roles there. Um, I mean, my career has always been at CMO level in companies where you effectively own the product, you're heavily influencing the place and the price as well as the promotion um, and any other piece that get invented. Um, Hmm. Whether you own those things or not, I think your remit has to include a very heavy influence over them Mm. uh, to make sure that you've got the right holistic outcome for the business. Um, and I've always Mm. had roles where you're very closely deeply embedded into the P&L into Mm. how the business drives its growth into how the business makes its money and into the choices that the business makes to um, invest for the future and that's been my personal passion and personal choice um, because I love love the P&L side of things I love the balance sheet I love getting into the middle Mm. of the business versus sitting on the periphery. Um, And, you know, my roles have always been on the executive teams. There's there's never been a question whether or not in the organisations I've worked for, whether or not the CMO would be part of that group. Yeah, it's funny. I had a discussion with Mel Hopkins, the CMO at Seven, last week at South by Southwest. And uh, there was a panel uh, discussing sort of the CMO role. And, you know, someone asked a question, you know, along the lines of, you know, how does the CMO win their seat back at the table or whatever? And, you know, Mel in her sort of, you know, um, signature way said like, no, we need to sort of kill that meme that like, you know, um, this idea that the CMO role is sort of, you know, taking a backseat to the CFO and all of that, you know, people need to sort of uh, push back on that. And I thought that was a very interesting perspective and aligns a little bit with Mm -hmm. what you said there that, well, and for me, if, if, if you are genuinely there to grow the business yeah. in the right way, if you're there as a partner to your C-suite um, colleagues, mm. if you've got the tenacity and the resilience to deal with big problems, if you are genuinely adding value in terms of vision and strategy and the path forward, mm. you know, I think, of course, we deserve our place at the table. Um, if you're not up for those things, though, then why would you sure. want to be there? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, Jenny, I know you're very busy and I could I could sit here and chat about these things forever, uh, but I want to move on to the quick fire round part of this interview. Um, and so I want to ask you your favourite marketing campaign of all time, any brand. Ooh, oh, my goodness, of all time. Um, Nike. The Nike mm. campaign is one that's just 
stood the test of time. Just do it. One of the best taglines mm. in the world, one of the best logos in the world, and a mm. really nice way of honouring the past but keeping the brand relevant for today and for tomorrow. Right. I think they've done a magical job of that. Yeah, also a great example of what we talked about earlier with not throwing away. You know, they've sort of, I I, I can imagine the, the temptation along the journey to throw out elements of that brand, whether it's the tagline, the tick, the, mm-hmm. you know, I, I can only imagine there's been people calling for it and to resist the temptation. Mm-hmm. It's funny, I saw something on LinkedIn the other day and it was, you know, how all of these luxury brands or all of these brands are sort of changing their logos and, you know, Coca-Cola, you know, they've never... They've, again, they've resisted the temptation, which I'm sure has been real, to throw things out. So I think that's a, a great answer and a great testament to, um, yeah, consistency and that fruit is in the roots. Mm-hmm. And um, amazing creativity, amazing product development. It all comes together, right? It's not like the brand advertising is disconnected from the business. It's all one and the same. And that's yeah. that's what I love about the Nike story. Yeah, and I think, yeah, I, I, again, I, yeah, I think Nike is such a great story. I think the other thing that I love so much about the the platform is that they really do find a way, to your point, to connect it to both the product but also every different target. You know, they sort of, they, yeah, it doesn't matter if it's a sort of, you know, me trying to get around for a 5K run every fourth day or, you know, an elite athlete, that just do it platform sort of speaks to both um, equally powerfully. Um which I think is yeah, a testament to, to such great yeah. brand work. Um, Amazing. Speaking of great brands, um, and maybe another one if it was going to be Nike, but what is the best brand? And maybe, you know, you know maybe if, if you've got a, a well-known brand, mm-hmm. maybe something that's a little bit up and coming or hmm. might not be as obvious. What are the brands that you admire and look to? Oh, so it, pretty much at the moment, anything Ryan Reynolds touches just seems to yeah. turn into brand gold. Um, and it's 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 a model that I'm watching with great interest because mm. it's very very different to your big multinational spending a bunch of money to invent something. It's right. coming at it from a deal, really different way, which is super interesting. Mm. Um, nice tongue in cheek humor, great yep. products behind it, and a huge fan base built into yeah. everything you do. It's yeah, super it's interesting. Di- distribution first, right? I guess is. Um the name of the game there. And I guess it's like an interesting extension. I don't know if it's an extension, but it's sort of like it, it's funny this came up in another episode the other day. It's like it feels like a sort of different version of like the influencer ambassador model given like, you know, the sort of the the ownership model and all of that feels very, very interesting. And I agree, the, some of the stuff with the football team and, you know, it's just fascinating stuff. Yeah, it's a great answer. Gold um, right there. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, what's the most overrated trend in marketing right now? Oh, if I get asked to one more webinar conversation panel where everyone's banging on about AI, I, yeah. you know, I, I'm done. <laughs> yeah. Everyone's talking around in circles, talking over 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 each other, but no one's really figured it out yet, and no one's admitting they haven't figured it out yet. Right. Um, I, I, have you, and I know you probably can't share details, but is it, you know, is it a part of the discussion at Arnott's now? Are you thinking about it or is your take that sort of, you know, that the sort of the trend will pass or what's your take personally? Oh, my, my observation is every year there's some big topic that becomes the hottest topic that's got to be talked about. I believe we were talking about NFTs this time a year ago and the metaverse a year before that. Yep. And everyone was carrying on like it was going to be the end of marketing as we knew it if you didn't get on mm. board the train. Mm. Um, I would prefer to reframe all those things in 
how are they useful growth levers levers for me in my business and what I need to do? How are they an enabler for what we're trying to do? Where do they fit into my ecosystem? And I instead, I really want my team focused on how do I connect with my consumers? Yeah. How do I make my consumers happy? How do I delight them each and every day? If I do that, then the tools I get there are going to continue to evolve over time. You know, in the olden days, we used to be able to just do four things, a TV mm. ad, an outdoor ad, a radio ad, and an in-store poster, and we were done. Now mm. it's much more fragmented. But I want my team focused on how we're going to delight our consumers and grow our business. And yep. then everything else, there's a new tool each year, a new platform each year. How do I use that? How do how does it fit into the system and get on with it rather than spending all this time worrying about what it is or isn't this year? Yeah, yeah. No, I, I yeah, I couldn't agree more and you're not the first person to raise that exact point of view. And I think, like, th- I think there is some genuinely interesting stuff. Like, you know, a, a lot of the ideas with generative visuals and assets I spoke to actually, are re- I spoke to um, uh, Cam Luby, the head of consumer marketing at mm-hmm. Optus in Sydney, and like, you know, without sharing details, he said, you know, we're experimenting with, you know, assets and how it could sort of take um, uh, some of our ads in different directions. And, you know, obviously it's a sort of a lot of the tools have their own sort of, um, you know, creative feel, and that's interesting. Mm-hmm. But but I agree as a sort of, you know, saviour or I guess the opposite, you know, the sort of the death of, mm-hmm. you know, designers and cre- like it's, yeah. Yeah, but, but all the use cases I keep hearing about is is more fragmentation. I'm not sure that's the huh. answer. Right. More what consistency. Do you mean? What do you mean by that? Well, right. it, it's all right. different versions and iterations and, you know, the, the, the desire to get to one-to-one relevance. I'm not sure in my categories that that is the most important thing. I think consistency huh. and scale and impact over time that's is much more important. That's really interesting, actually, because that, that's like a perspective I haven't really heard someone articulate that clearly, because I agree, like all of the stuff with generative is more variance, more personalized, uh, different for different targets. But you're right, it's sort of like that does go against a lot of the marketing science with distinctive assets and wearing out, uh, sorry, wearing in. Um, so that's it. Yeah, that's a great perspective. Like I said, I haven't heard someone say it that clearly, but I think that's a great sort of... Um, counter argument to a lot of the generative AI stuff. So very yeah, interesting. I, I think divisive and differentiated does not necessarily always build a brand. I think it can be really hmm. useful in the bottom of the funnel, last mile kind of targeting stuff. Have right. I got a personal deal for you to sure. get you over the line? No problem. But even hmm. the bigger stuff, I just I just don't see it. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And again, when once you start thinking through marketing science and distinctiveness, yeah, like actually that consistency of 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 message and visual and an asset is the name of the game, not fragmentation. So yeah, yeah gr- 100%. Gr- great answer. But um, so what about the opposite? What about the most underrated trend? What, what do we <laughs> still not spend enough time talking about? <laughs> talking about how we're going to delight our consumers. I mean, hmm. literally, I think... Uh, um, Right. I could probably count on one hand this year the number of times I've seen on any of the big panels or events anyone really focused on consumers. Hmm. That's so interesting. So that so yeah, I mean that makes so much sense. Um how do you guys think, you know, at Arnett's then about that sort of you know, what are those moments? What are those different moments? And how can you interject in those moments to deliver delight? Because obviously, like, just consuming the product, I assume, is one of them, which is very obvious. But, like, how do you go beyond that? Like, what else can you do 
for me as a consumer to delight me beyond just having a, a tasty product? Yeah. How do you think about moments? Um, so I think there's obviously a couple of ways in. One is obviously first and foremost with the product. The second is making sure the product is really fit for your occasion. So back mm. to the Vitaweights example, one of my favorite products, I use Vitaweights every single day. Um, and what we had was this giant 250-gram pack that sat at home in your pantry mm. and occasionally you took a couple out and had them for whatever snack you needed. Um, we've launched now a perfectly designed for lunch pack, little mini pack mm. of four. So it goes mm. in my handbag or it goes in my in my computer bag. It goes to the office with me and part of my lunch then. So yeah. it's just making it easier for consumers to really use your product in the right way and take the innate love or passion they have for the product and just make it more accessible, more relevant, more convenient. Yeah. Um, I think in the other way is the entertainment side. So our social has to be entertaining. We're a right. fun category with fun products. Um, we need to be entertaining you as well. And, you know, you can delight consumers in many ways. Um, but I think that closeness to consumers, really truly understanding your consumers and what they want and what you can do for them, uh, I think is is highly underrated. Yeah, and like you say, sort of bringing them in, um, you know, whether that's the um, – uh, the not a real product or, or or whatever it might be, sort of bringing them in. And I, I promise I'll go and follow Arnott's uh, on Instagram straight after this. <laughs> Great. Um, all right, last question, Jenny. Uh, who should I have on the show next? Who's someone that inspires you that you think has a, a unique story and point of view on mm-hmm. everything marketing, branding? Mm-hmm. How about someone from the Diamonds Netball team? They have got a overflowing hmm cabinet of trophies at the moment i think they've won pretty much everything there is to win in the world hugely underrated team doing some amazing work and and really 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 working well together as a team Hmm. um and working through some fairly challenging turbulent times from a you know sports funding perspective right um and you know it's a huge moment for women's sport at the moment so you can't go wrong in the world of women's sport i think that you could get some really interesting people in yeah i i think that's a great answer because um, uh, I'm going to be speaking to Kim Anderson, who led marketing for the Women's World Cup, um, which, like, I mean, just what a moment. Speaking of moments, like, what a moment, what a what a marketing sort of masterclass, really. Um, and I haven't met her yet, so, you know, but I'm very much looking forward to hearing, you know, how they both sort of built the moment, but then also, like, I'm sure it was bigger than they were expecting it to be. So then how did they capture and ride that wave? So that's a, a, a great one. And, you know, I think, you know, hopefully netball has its Matilda's moment, you know, still to come. So They definitely deserve it. They've definitely got the performance. So that's uh, great. Ab- great start. Absolutely. Um, Jenny, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really enjoyed that. Thank you so much. Lovely to meet you. Thanks for listening to the On The Moment podcast. If you liked this episode, make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss upcoming episodes. And to suggest a guest or provide feedback, please visit our dedicated podcast hub at ownthemomentpod.com 